You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The use of antidepressants has exploded since the release of Prozac in the late 1980s, yet many patients on antidepressants do not achieve remission. How can we more completely treat depression? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Markowitz. Dr. Markowitz is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and the director of the Mood and Anxiety Research Center in Fresno, California. In addition to having a PhD in biochemistry, he is a board-certified psychiatrist who's been the primary investigator for dozens of clinical trials. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Leslie. Pleasure. Paul, you've you've really made quite a reputation in psychiatry as being the, the depression expert. What do you see as the most common mistake that most of us make when we treat depressed patients? I think the most common mistake that we make is not treating the depression to remission, just settling for partial treatment. So they're better, but they're not all the way better? In the past, we really thought if people were some better, that was enough. And we don't push the treatment enough to get them all the way there. Why do you suppose that is? I mean, certainly if you're an oncologist, you're not going to hope to get rid of some of the cancer. Uh, What makes treating depression different? It's a good question. And I don't have an easy answer for that one. We do know that if you don't treat depression to remission, uh, in fact, if you have depression in general, that pieces of your brain actually die. I went into psychiatry because I thought it was the only field of medicine where we weren't dealing with dead tissue. And it turns out that parts of your hippocampus actually atrophy, as it were, lose volume. And that's not a good thing because I don't know too often that brain grows back. It's probably why it's tougher to treat somebody that's been depressed 20 years than two years. We really need to go after it and and treat them to remission the same way we would with cancer. The outcome's way, way better. What are the most common residual symptoms of an inadequately treated depression? Andy Nirenberg did a really nice trial probably a good seven or eight years ago now that was published. And he looked at people, even that were largely better, effectively in remission, But even of these people, about 40% of them still had some type of insomnia. A third had residual fatigue. A quarter of them had decreased interest, concentration, or guilt feelings. About one in six had some residual mood and weight issues. And still about one in 20 felt either mentally slowed or had some suicidal ideation left. So those are even in people we do a good job. So it could be much worse, those numbers, in people that we don't treat all the way. So what should we do? Well... One of the problems we have now, my bias here, is that we don't use enough medicine. As a pharmacologist, whenever I read Goodman and Gilman for the first time, they said the whole basis of pharmacology is to get enough drug to the site of action to work. The pharmaceutical companies, unfortunately, are now selling their drugs as if they're flip-flops for your brain and one size fits all. I don't think they're bad people or anything, but because most of the medicines are written by primary care, they like this idea that just give them this and everything's a go. But we know that people break down medicines at different rates. That's why they need different amounts of thyroid to get to a level in their blood, or lithium, or Depakote, or digoxin. How much you swallow doesn't matter. It's how much you get in. And the primary problem I see in these individuals is not using enough medication. There are differences in how much individuals need in the dosing. Well, you and I are both old enough to remember when Prozac came out, and it really was. It was one-size-fits-all, 20 milligrams for everybody, and, and clearly that, that's not the case. No, not at all. And in fact, in our studies that we did in borderline personality disorder, uh, 2030 
40, 50, 60, 70 were all the same, and it didn't work till you got to 80, probably because it's doing different things at 80 milligrams than it does at 20. The, the other interesting thing, we do a lot of these trials for a living. The clinical trials that get an antidepressant to a market, the people in those trials are freaks, and I know that sounds weird, but they are. They have pure depression. They can only have been depressed for three weeks, but not longer than a year at any point in their life without at least six months of resolution. If they have any substance abuse within the past five years, they're kicked out. If they have any comorbid anxiety, panic, social phobia, generalized anxiety disorder, not allowed into the trial. If they have any medical problems, pretty much at all, they're not in the trial. If they have any personality disorders, not in the trial. And if they failed more than two antidepressants at any dose, they're considered treatment refractories. So they're not in the trial. And this describes almost nobody in real life that we see. So yes, the antidepressants work in that group at these lower dosages, but placebo does a great job too, which is why they don't separate that much. Most people with bad depressions need more medicines, just like bad diabetics are going to need more and higher dosages of medicines or bad cardiac patients will. Same is true of depression. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is psychiatrist Dr. Paul Markowitz. We are discussing treatment-resistant depression. So, Paul, you know, one of your strengths is teaching primary care physicians on how to treat depression. How do you advise a primary care doc where to start? How do you begin in a treatment of depression? It's a good question. It's probably not too much different than what they're doing now. I would just ask them to push a little bit more. Part of it's going to be dependent on what symptoms the patients have. If they have somatic complaints, migraines, irritable bowel, fibromyalgia, TMJ, PMS, neurodermatitis, headaches, uh, even sleep apnea, they're going to need a medicine that increases serotonin at a minimum. Likewise, if they don't have any of those, very, very rare, then you don't need to do that. SRIs, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Celexa, Lexapro, Luvox, do not work in men any better than placebo. They're marginally, at best, better, and not statistically so. So what I would advise is that if you're going to start somebody on a medicine and you're looking for a broad-spectrum coverage, either start with Effexor or Cymbalta at this point. And since most of the patients, at least three or four to one, are going to be female, I would probably increase the dosage of medications every five days until the carbohydrate craving goes away, regardless of what it says on the package insert the patient ain't getting better, it's not going to work. It's impossible to hurt anybody with these medications, only if you don't use enough. So if you get a little bit more aggressive, I think you'd be okay. It was funny when I moved to, from Cleveland to Fresno, I would get referrals of patients taking 75 milligrams of Effexor a day because uh, the clinicians thought they were being very, very aggressive. They had them on 75 of Effexor and it said 37 and a half worked. And we'd crank them up to 300 or 450, and wham, the fibromyalgia would go away, the migraines, the irritable bowel, and so on. Now all the primary care guys are doing that. So, it's, it, again, it's a question of comfort level, but you really, really got to use enough medicine to work. And that carb craving is a really good thing to go for in women if you just – and they'll love you, too. I've yet to meet a woman that doesn't like losing weight. <laughs> so how high do you go on these meds? Usually 450 of effects or 120 of Cymbalta will do it, and it's a question of – comfort level. We had published some papers with Olaf Sertraline back in the early 90s where we took some of our borderline patients, uh, probably a different disease than simple depression or panic. But we, of the 700-odd patients that we treated, about a third of them didn't have a response to 200 milligrams of Zoloft. 
And so we measured serum levels, peak serum levels of Zoloft sertraline. And we found that virtually everyone that didn't respond had lower levels markedly by 50 or 60 percent than those that had. So we invited them in and they came back with informed consent to do a trial. And uh, we cranked up the doses of Zoloft in some cases to 400 milligrams, which I know sounds like a lot and is a lot, but when you measure how much is in their bloodstream, it was the same as if a normal person would be taking 150 or 200. And it converted about 40 percent of the non-responders into responders. I don't think it's going to work in everybody in borderlines in this case or depressed patients in general, but you've got to get enough medicine in to work. And we tend to underdose medicines and then switch from the same class to the same class, go from Prozac to Paxil, change classes if your particular class of medicine is not working. Now, don't you get side effects at those high doses, though? Surprisingly, no. There's a tad more sexual dysfunction with the SRIs and a bit more tremor with Effexor in some individuals. But it really depends on the patient. Not all medicines are going to fit all people. But the important thing is getting rid of the disease. Even if you do get a bit more sexual dysfunction or a bit more tremor, those things tend to be treatable with other medications. But more importantly, if it gets rid of the depression, that's going to have the depression has such a profound impact on one's life, it's usually worth the few side effects. But surprisingly, it's been very, very low incidence. Just to recap, so men, you would go with the SNRIs like uh, Cymbalta or Effects or women, SSRIs, Prozac, Zoloft, et cetera, are probably a reasonable place to start. But they don't work as well as the SNRIs. But I'm also aware of the insurance constraints that we have in our marketplace right now. So calling up to justify a medicine that's still under patent versus one that's not for the bit of efficacy increase that we get, the clinician just may not have enough time to do it. Let's say you do start with one of those meds, you get it up to these kind of doses, but you have the patient still complain of these residual symptoms. Um, then what do you do? In the olden days, I used to augment, but now I would probably switch classes of medicine. So if we had somebody, say, on Effexor, and it's very, very good medicine, but it's not working adequately, or there are a few symptoms left, I might try switching to Cymbalta. Even though that's in the same class, there are enough differences we pull a lot of people out of the fire. There are augmentation modalities we can use. We talked about some of the symptoms that were left. So one of the primary ones is insomnia. Then you treat the insomnia. You put in some Lunesta or Ambien or Trazodone or whatever your drug du jour is. If you have concentration, fatigue, or interest problems, I've found Provigil to be a great medicine to add on, non-addictive, not habit-forming. It works very, very well. And you kind of go after the symptoms. One of the problems with depression is it's like saying you have a fever. It's very nonspecific. And there are a lot of things that can cause a fever. We know if you have it, something's wrong. But we, you know, if somebody just presented with fever, we wouldn't know what the treatment was. And with depression, because we don't have a biological test yet, we're kind of stuck. So, we'll, you know, if you got a fever, we'll throw in amoxicillin the first time. If that doesn't work, we'll look for something else. But changing classes is the main thing. You know, one of the complaints, not only from insurance companies, but from patients, is then people end up on this whole uh, potpourri smorgasbord of medicines, and one for this and one for that and one for this. How do you manage this uh, polypharmacy that, that's inevitable if you treat every symptom? It is an issue. And sometimes the easiest thing is finding one medicine where it covers everything. And frequently that happens if you use enough medicine. So, for example, you might have somebody on 300 milligrams of Effexor and the individual is gaining weight and still is feeling a bit anxious. Well, it may just be if you went to 450 milligrams of Effexor, it would work. 
even if you do that, you still may have to add on a sleeper at night and something for the anxiety because you haven't completely controlled all the symptoms. That doesn't make it too much different, really, than diabetes or hypertension or heart diseases. Your brain's an organ like everything else, and we're trying to control the most complicated organ in the body with a handful of medicines, and it's not always easy to do, but it's doable. And I explain to the patients in very long, detailed explanations that they're doing. I had given an example of having a flu earlier on where you have vomiting, achy joints, and so on. They're supposed to do that. And just like when your brain is diseased, you do exactly what you're supposed to do. And they need medicines to control it. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate your expertise. We have been discussing treatment-resistant depression with Dr. Paul Markowitz. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.